1: I want to welcome you to the show. We have so much to discuss today. One of the things we're going to be talking about is uh, this concerted effort to erase history. And you don't have to be a historian. You don't have to, you know, be the person who just delights in, in dusty old books, you know, as as your purpose in life. You just have to be somebody who understands there's a lot to learn from history. There there's nothing to be gained by erasing it. And yet uh, the effort takes place in so many different forms. One of the really interesting battles I've been watching for a while is this effort to erase the history of Utah's Dixie. Now, this was my former stomping grounds here some years ago. I have attorney Tim Anderson on the line with me. Tim, you are are not just a longtime attorney in the St. George area, but you're a longtime resident. How long have you been there?
2: I've lived here, been practicing a here for 42 years.
1: Since there was one stoplight. Okay, and that's a, and folks who can remember Saint George with one stoplight. No, that was that was a while back. Talk to us about there's, to, about, there's the,
2: about 200 there's about 250 stoplights
1: now. <laughs> it's it's a whole different experience. And uh, you know, I, I had the privilege of living in Saint George for nine years, and spent a total of about 23 years in Southern Utah. Um, just a, a, a gorgeous, gorgeous place. But I'm very uh, I'm very concerned when I see the effort to erase Utah's Dixie, because apparently the name Dixie to some people is considered an offensive reminder of America's uh, sordid past. Tell me about some of the efforts that are going on to erase that name and and who's behind it. Why do they want to get rid of it?
2: Well, the, the concern is it's really one of developing understanding and education in this time when. History is being looked at a little differently with a little different scrutiny, both, both for the good and for the bad, depending on a number of things. But as you know, uh, year many, many years ago, uh, the pioneers were sent to the St. George area to grow cotton, and it became known as Utah's Dixie. It just that name developed, and the cotton really didn't develop, it didn't stick, but the name did. And that's been the the, the nature, really the, the name, we like to say, Utah's Dixie is to southern Utah, particularly southwestern Utah, sort of like Aloha is to Hawaii. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of definition. It's deep in uh, in the experience that people that live here, whether they've lived here for a long time or they just moved here, we call it the Dixie spirit. And and that would normally be something that would be really nice for any part of the country to have, to really have a designation that, that they felt positive, warm and welcoming about. But the problem of course is that in this current situation, there's a a significant divide in our country that deals with racial issues and particularly past racial issues and and very, very legitimate and important racial issues that we need to face as a country right now. But um, one of the sort of victims of this are those that live in Utah's Dixie where there's really some pretty sustained confusion because people see that name and they see it in southern Utah. They say, why are they using that sort of a name since we relate it to the deep south of America where there are a lot of other totally unrelated issues, but they don't realize that. And so that's become, uh, at least in current parlance, somewhat of a pejorative in the national discussion. But uh, we've been drawn into it because of the use of the term here, which has a completely different. A different appropriation, and so that's a big part of the problem. So we're trying to redevelop and redefine and educate and develop a much more broad understanding of Utah's Dixie, and uh, and that would seem like a very simple issue. <clears throat> the problem, of course, is that, and this is there, there are two challenges. But the, the one is that it, it is a, a, a sort of a stranded. Um, trade on history with some some stress there but also that dixie dixie college many years ago in about 1952 um, the students with i think without um, any ill will or deep, even deep understanding of the issue decided to use the confederacy as their moniker and they had it was the dixie rebels and and uh, many other related things and those things that would come out 50s and 60s and 70s, and and so that became uh, there were Confederate flags around and lots of things that related to the Deep South, and uh, and, and that continued until uh, really in the mid 1990s, when uh, the, the college president and and students and leaders began to phase it out, and it was phased out by. By 2000, about 2007 in total, and uh, I just happened to notice it when I was as I was living. I grew up in part in, in District Heights, Maryland, Prince George's County, and so when I moved to when I ended up in St. George, it, it was a disturbing to me as well, this sort of Confederate look and feel, and so I wrote a column in the newspaper in 1991 in the Spectrum newspaper entitled "It's Time to Bury the Confederate Flag." and uh, sort of started that with, uh, and then explained all the reasons why we needed to move away from the Confederacy at Dixie Dixie College. And ultimately they did. And with cooperation of lots of key people over time and now it's gone. So at current time, we're trying to deal with this issue. And uh, we sort of have this part of the issue, the, the college part that still can be pointed to as if we have some connection with the deep South. Our view is that's gone. That's not part of us. And so this movement that you see now is called the Defending, Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition. It's to really present the true, uh, the, the true view, look, and feel of Utah's Dixie.
1: Tim, it's been very interesting to me how many um, civic leaders. Have appeared to jump on the bandwagon of well, you know, we've got to change this. It could be insensitive, and it it seems like I don't know. Maybe maybe this is just what the cost of being in politics or, or being an elected person. But it seems like they're very eager to appease, but um, they've been reluctant to to stand for that heritage. Have Have you seen this as well?
2: We're, we're looking at really protecting the heritage, and the history, the culture, and tradition. And we like to say that that we want. To do this for everyone that views Utah Dixie as they the place where they want to live. So this isn't just a matter of protecting uh, and preserving the pioneer heritage. It's preserving the heritage, for example, the Pacific Islanders that have come to Dixie College, and that's because was their, you know, that was their higher education home, and have moved on throughout the world, but have Dixie deep in their heart because they went to Dixie College and others, and some of the great African-American athletes that have gone through Dixie College and have just made us proud, and and many, many other people. So it's not just the local indigenous pioneer cowboy families. It's much, much more than that. But it's hard to have that point clearly communicated in this frenzied world right now, where you have movements who are sort of Trying to create uh, so much um, societal conformity when they deal with any issue, and we find ourselves to be, I think, the very appropriate, fair, and uh, and, and I think uh, committed exception to the the uh, uh, to to, to, the, to, the, to the trend because we are a community with a deep heritage and a deep history. And that is the name that uh, that it's based on. And so we're different. We're, we're not part of the Deep South. And I'm hopeful that there will be a much more understanding will develop over time so that we'll benefit from, I think, the the, the cooperation and welcome and friendship that comes from different uh, different peoples gathering a place that they love to be. And this is a great place for it.
1: As I've looked over the, the Facebook page for Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition, I'm struck by the number of, uh, you know, pillars of the community, longtime residents, people of of distinction. And I'm talking good people. It's not just, hey, a recognizable name, but people who have really contributed to that uh, that community over the years who have rallied to the defense of Utah's Dixie. So I, I would encourage people who want to know more. Go to Facebook. Look for the Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition. And, and Tim... Thank you to you and others who have uh, put the time and effort into creating uh, a place where people can come together on this issue, non-confrontationally and, and hopefully find a solution that doesn't involve erasing the past just because someone has chosen to be offended somewhere.
2: Well, thank you. And, and that's important. We we think we don't want those that want to, that feel like they need to take our culture down in order to build theirs up. That's There's not room for that. We can all get along. We can get along together on this and, That's really part of the Dixie spirit.
1: All right, Tim Anderson, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. And again, I wish you all the best. I'll be following this very closely. Thanks again. All right, we will be back right after these messages.
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. So I just got a question from a friend, and I'm going to pass this along. I don't think she would mind that, uh, that I pose this question. Because I think it illustrates something that I really wanted to delve into, and that is where when did our when did our um, freedom of speech turn into fear of speech? Because it, it's getting harder to speak your mind. You notice it. Everyone is so divided. It's tougher to love your neighbor. It's tougher to you know bridge that gap between you know even family members seem like they're just at each other's throats. And my friend says, so I had have a, have a weird question. She says. Is there a place or group where people can discuss what's happening in this nation and ideas for what actions help or make a difference without having whack jobs involved? Now, if you're nodding your head going, yeah, (laughs) I get what she's saying. Um, You probably have been trying to have some of those discussions yourself. And I don't know, you know, I mean, the the, the term whack job may be a uh, kind of a subjective call. And my answer was, if there's such a place, I don't know where it would be. We pretty much have to risk the nut jobs in order to have any kind of a discussion. And I guess maybe another way of putting this is, there is no way for a person who wishes to speak the truth or share the truth with other people to do so risk-free. We're just not at that point in, in our society. And it makes me sad because I've seen better times where, I mean, it's always been a little bit risky to share the truth, right? I mean, in some in some cases, sharing the truth, you know, has, has carried a little bit of risk, depending on what that truth was. I mean, the guy walking around with a sandwich board, the end of the world is near. I'm sure he's sharing truth as best he understands it, but it's not always well received. But now we're to the point where it is almost impossible to, to share any kind of truth. And I used to use this as an illustration. You know, I think puppies are cute. Okay, well, the cat people are angered. They're, they're infuriated. They're going to boycott your business. They're going to dox you, and they're going to make sure you're fired from your job. Because that's how people react to any point of view. You don't have to be trying to be offensive. And trust me, there are a lot of people who've built very lucrative careers on being polemicists, either writing or speaking in ways that, that they knew would enrage people and thrill others because they were, they were being very provo- provocative. Alex Jones probably is the king of the polemicists. And I'm not saying that to denigrate him. I'm just saying, look, his, his job was to, to generate attention. Outrage worked well. But even that, you know, wasn't enough to protect him from, you know, being deplatformed and otherwise people trying to silence him. And it's only gotten worse. It's and, and it will probably get even tougher as we move forward. Even if you're just a mild mannered observer of what's going on and you draw a breath to say, you know, I think someone is waiting there to clap their hand over your mouth and shut you up because what you're saying is not welcome. Sad, but true. By the way, Jeff Jacoby has a terrific article in the Boston Globe. Fear of speech is replacing freedom of speech. And his point for this whole essay is that for generations, Americans were raised to see robust debate as legitimate, desirable, and essential to democratic health. No longer. There are some things which cannot be tolerated. What was the comment somebody made? Uh, You know, there's a there's a video making the rounds of these doctors that held their uh, press conference outside the Supreme Court and and just challenged the covid-19 narrative. And it's being ruthlessly censored. All of the big social media giants, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, they are yanking this video down. You so much as allude to it. They will cancel whatever it is you're posting. All right. This violates our community standards. And I actually saw somebody with a straight face say, well, that's because this kind of stuff spreads like cancer. And it's it's tougher to convince people who've been fed misinformation that they've been, you know, misinformed than it is to, uh, you know, feed them correct information. Wait, did he say that? Is it tougher to feed correct information? Anyway, he wanted to justify... Keeping this out of the public eye, censoring it, maybe not by government, but but nonetheless, people can't be trusted with this stuff because it's just going to confirm their existing beliefs, which, of course, we know would never happen with anyone who believes the official COVID narrative. (laughs) Why, they would never gravitate towards sources that only confirm their official beliefs, would they? Well, would they? All right, let's open up the lines here. 801-331-8113. Caller, welcome to the show. Go ahead, you're on the air. Well, push the button. I did push the button. Didn't hear it. Yeah.
3: Didn't hear it, didn't hear it, didn't come through. Anyway, uh, yeah, I'm sick of people that won't grow up there and stand up for themselves like this Dixie thing, you know. Dixie just means the South, big deal. And I don't even mind their flag. That's just, you know, uh, it doesn't really represent slavery. It's just a bunch of states that... Banded together. But, uh, I'm so tired of them trying to rewrite history and tiptoes through the tulips and, and the eggshells and be a bunch of wussies. It's just sick of it. You know?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, People, I, I, have, I can tell you, I mean, you're not I, the only one.
3: <laughs> if I got a point, I make sure I get it across. I don't care if I have to yell at them, I do it. Because they, they end up knowing how I feel. And, uh, you know, I get my points across because a lot of these people been in college and that and in high in schools, they've been taught that America's bad and everything else and the guns are all bad and we need to get rid of all the things that we believe in and the statues and everything. <clears throat> anyway, that's all I've got.
1: Okay. Hey, I appreciate your call. Thank you for speaking your mind. <laughs> It's scary for some people, and I don't mean. And I'm not trying to say everybody's a sheep, you know, who doesn't, you know, speak out as boldly as this last gentleman is willing to speak out. But you don't know. You're you're kept off guard. And here's here's an example of it: when people start looking up things that you either liked or maybe you posted yourself on Facebook from five, seven, nine, ten years ago. Doesn't that seem a bit much? Ah, we found something. Why he posted a cartoon that could be deemed offensive, <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna go up there with the cancel mob, and and we're gonna cancel him. We're gonna pick at this person's business, or we're gonna approach their employer and tell them you've got to get rid of this person. This is becoming the norm. And so I think Jeff Jacoby has a, a pretty solid case when he says we are replacing freedom of speech with fear of speech. And it's interesting because he hearkens to the uh, famous Norman Rockwell painting. If you remember this one, the young man addressing a local gathering, which was inspired by a real event. Apparently, uh, one evening in 1942, Rockwell attended the town meeting in Arlington, Vermont, where he lived for many years. On the agenda was the construction of a new school. Now, it was a popular proposal supported by everyone in attendance except one resident who got up to express his dissenting view. And he was evidently a blue-collar worker whose battered jacket and stained fingernails set him apart from the other men in the audience, all dressed in white shirts and ties. In Rockwell's scene, the man speaks his mind, unafraid to express a minority opinion and not intimidated by the status of those he's challenging. He has no reason not to speak plainly. His words are being attended to with respectful attention. His neighbors may disagree with him, but they're willing to hear what he has to say. I love that painting because the look on the guy's face is not one of anger. Or rage, okay? He's not spittle-flinging and, you know, telling the crowd how the cow chewed the cabbage. And Jeff Jacoby says what brings Rockwell's painting to mind is the new national poll by the Cato Institute. We actually mentioned this a couple days ago on the show. A survey that found that self-censorship has become extremely widespread in American society, with 62% of adults saying, given the current political climate, they're honestly afraid to express their views. And those fears cross partisan lines. Majorities of Democrats at 52%, Independents at 59%, and Republicans at 77% all agree that they have political opinions, but they're afraid to share them. And the survey's 2,000 respondents sorted themselves ideologically as very liberal, liberal, moderate, conservative, or very conservative. In every category except very liberal, a majority of those respondents said, yeah, I feel pressured to keep my views to myself because they fear they could be fired or otherwise penalized at work if their political beliefs became known. Yeah, I agree with Jeff Jacoby. That does not sound healthy. So why do we tolerate it? This is The
0: Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, once again, thanks for being part of my audience today. If you'd like to join the conversation, do so. 801-331-8113. If you're catching the podcast, okay, that's not going to be an option, but thanks for catching the podcast and maybe subscribe, tell a friend, you know, something like that. Talking about how our fear, our freedom of speech is turning to fear of speech. I'm going to go back here to this article by Jeff Jacoby, writing for the Boston Globe. And he talks about how freedom of speech has been threatened in America. Now, this isn't something new, okay? It's happened before. But the suppression of wrong opinions in the past used to come from the top down. In other words, it was government that arrested editors for criticizing Woodrow Wilson's foreign policy or who made it a crime to burn the flag or turn the dogs on civil rights marchers or jailed communists under the Smith Act. By contrast, today, dissent is rarely prosecuted. Thanks to the Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence, freedom of expression has never been more strongly protected legally. But culturally, the freedom to express unpopular views has never been more endangered. On college campuses, in workplaces, in the media, there are ever-widening, no-go zones of viewpoints and arguments that cannot be safely expressed. By the way, case in point... There was an article, uh, this was from intellectualtakeout.org, titled Martyrs, Meaningless Deaths, and the Monologue on Race. And it contrasts the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis with a young woman by the name of Jessica Whitaker, 24-year-old home health nurse. She was white, but she had the temerity to say to a group of black people, all lives matter. And for this, she was murdered in front of her fiancé. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. What she said was not evil. It wasn't provocative. It was only controversial if you are a person who believes not in equality, but in subservience. She left behind a three-year-old daughter. And unlike George Floyd, Jessica Whitaker hadn't done time for robbery. She didn't have drugs in her system. No one so far has been arrested or punished for her murder. It's funny. It's kind of a non-issue to the media. Well, she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's like a car accident or a natural disaster. Well, you know, just sucks to be you. I'll have a link to this article. I'll put it in the show notes. But it's a good illustration of how, you know, even something as innocuous as a woman saying all lives matter can get her killed. That's how, that's how drastic it is in some circles. Voice and opinion among that self-anointed social, among the uh, self-anointed social justice warriors. Something that they regard as heretical and the consequences can be career destroying, says Jeff Jacoby. The dean of the nursing school at UMass Lowell lost her job after writing in an email that everyone's life matters. An art curator in San Francisco was accused of being a racist, a racist, and forced to quit for saying that his museum would continue to consider the co- collecting the work of white artists. The director of communications for Boeing apologized and resigned after an employee complained 33 years ago this guy was opposed to women serving in combat. Jacoby says virtually everyone would agree that some views are indisputably beyond the pale. If there are supporters of slavery or advocates of genocide who feel inhibited from sharing their beliefs, yeah, no one really cares. But the range of opinions deemed unsayable by today's thought police extends well into the mainstream. And in many cases, the most enthusiastic supporters or suppressors, rather, of debate are students, journalists, artists, intellectuals. The ones who in former times were the greatest champions of uninhibited speech and the greatest foes of ideological conformity. And it isn't just on the totalitarian left that this impulse to silence dissent Exists. President Trump, always infuriated by criticism, has called for columnists who disparage him to be fired, for hecklers at his rallies to be beaten up, or TV stations to lose their licenses if they run ads vilifying his handling of the pandemic. He calls routinely, amp- calls routinely amplified rather on social media by tens of thousands of his followers. When a Babson College professor joked that Iran ought to bomb sites of beloved American cultural heritage like the Mall of America and the Kardashian residence, a right-wing website launched a campaign that got him fired. So it it does go both ways. The bottom line is, according to Jeff Jacoby, our right to free speech is shielded by the Constitution to a degree unmatched anywhere else. But our First First Amendment guarantees will prove impotent If the habit of free speech is lost. For generations, Americans were raised to see debate as legitimate, desirable, essential to democratic health. They quoted Voltaire's apocryphal aphorism, I disapprove of what you say, but will defend to the death your right to say it. Editors, publishers, satirists, civil libertarians took to heart the dictum of Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who wrote that the principle of free thought is meant to enshrine not free thought for those who agree with us, but freedom, of thought for those, for, for freedom for the thought, rather, that we hate. But that principle has been turned on its head. The thought that we hate is not tolerated, but stifled. It's reviled as taboo. It's forbidden to be uttered. And anyone expressing it may be accused not just of giving offense, but of literally endangering those who disagree. And even if some people lose their careers or reputations for saying something wrong, countless others get the chilling message. Jeff Jacoby concludes by saying the speaker in Norman Rockwell's painting may have had something unpopular to say, but neither he nor his neighbors had any doubt that it was appropriate for him to say it. Now such doubt is everywhere, and freedom of speech has never been more threatened. Wow. Okay, I'm including this one in the show notes. I hope you'll take a look at it. You know, here's something else, and this loosely applies to the free speech thing, but Um, I was talking with a good friend of mine. I'll give him a shout out. C train. We were talking uh, last week about uh, sports and this guy is a major sports fan. He loves sports. Loves it so much. He's subscribed to, you know, all the, 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 whatever. I don't know if it was dish network or what anyway, all the satellite packages of, you know, this sport and that sport, but he has reached the point where it's like, Holy cow. It's all becoming so politicized. Is there any game now where the players won't take a knee, you know, to show their their solidarity and signal their virtue? And his one solace was the fact that at least baseball hasn't been consumed with this, like the NFL, like the NBA. And then the, uh, the season opened, and sure enough, baseball had its share of people taking a knee during the national anthem. Now, for me personally, that's not the hill I'm going to die on, okay? It's, it's dissent. I understand some people may see it as offensive. Um, I choose not to be offended by it, but, but I do question. Is this really the, the best? Is this the most appropriate venue in which to register this political statement? And I'm still not sure exactly what the statement is that they're saying. But it saddens me, too. I didn't play high school football, I didn't uh, play basketball, still can't play basketball to this day. I did play baseball, not in high school, but as a, as a kid, I was a little eager and I loved baseball. So when I saw this article, The Philosophy of America's Pastime, this is from Anders Koskinen, published on intellectualtakeout.org. It uh, it grabbed my attention because baseball has, well, it's it's been, you know, as American as apple pie for a long time, but... It's got its challenges, too. And he says, you know, the debates that are coming up in baseball, this is according to, uh, you know, Anders Koskinen, start with things like uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci throwing that embarrassing first pitch. But he says there are other questions that have come up in America's sport, America's pastime, philosophical questions like should steroid users be banned from the Hall of Fame? Are small ball tactics like bunting or stealing bases more interesting than a parade of muscle-bound home run hitters? Is the slower, untimed nature of baseball a feature or a bug of the game? And do you believe, as Kevin Costner's character put it in the movie Bull Durham, that there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter? Now, believe it or not, that's, uh, that would be a fun debate to host. Maybe I will offer this very show as a, as a venue for which this could be sorted out. <laughs> Anders Koskinen says baseball lends itself to these discussions and the leisurely pace of the game allows for many such arguments to take place while you're sitting in the stands. There are even books written specifically about the philosophy of baseball, one of which is Infinite Baseball. Notes from a Philosopher at the Ballpark by Alva No. You know, during COVID-19, Americans have been forced to adapt to a slower pace of life. Anders Koskinen says it's a pace of life filled with fewer distractions and entertainment options. He says perhaps the return to baseball, even if it comes with gimmicks like expanded playoffs and a runner on second base to start extra innings, is an opportunity for all of us to better connect to a slower paced, thought-filled sport suited to the lives we're leading in this challenging time. And he says it feels good to say this, play ball. I'll post this one with the show notes. You can check those out at thebryanhideshow.com just for your entertainment. In the meantime, my friend C-Train is looking for a new sport. I wonder how he feels about soccer. I might have to float that idea. I don't think we're far enough north for me to suggest hockey, but I'll keep that one uh, on the, the back bench.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. Came across an article by Jeffrey Tucker today. I picked this one up off of IntellectualTakeout.org, although I think it was originally published on the American Institute for Economic Research. Both are websites that I strongly recommend for truth seekers who are, are looking for a broad array of, of points of view and, and don't need to be talked down to or, or shouted at by, you know, partisan hacks. Jeff Tucker has one called The Bloodless Political Class and Its Lack of Empathy. And he zeroes in on something here that has been very troubling to me, so much so that I want to share this with you. It's, it's one of the more powerful articles I've read in the last couple of weeks. And he asks the question, why watch COVID press conferences and briefings by politicians? Why? I don't watch them. I know a few people who do, but um, mostly those people seem pretty upset. And, and this is what Jeff's getting at is they are upsetting That's all they are. These people seem to have no clue about why the virus is ignoring them. They keep issuing strange and arbitrary rules that they make up, change by the day, all enforced by intimidation and compulsion. And they posture in this silly way as if their edicts have this virus under control when they clearly do not. Even worse, he says, and what chills me to the bone, is the strange absence of normal human emotion in their public performances. Now think about what he says here. He says, with day to day human communication in the presence of uncertainty, there would be some admission of the possibility of being wrong, of mistakes made, of the difficulty of knowing, of the limits of information to make informed decisions, the pain wrought through such disruptive governance. But you don't see any of this in these governor's announcements. Despite all evidence, they act as if they've got this under control. They don't admit error, they don't admit ignorance. They stare straight at the cameras and issue edicts without even an apology for all the lives they have ruined and continue to ruin. They talk down to us, condescension in every word. And he has links. So he says, you're welcome to watch a typical case here. But he says, no need, since you know exactly what I'm talking about. We don't talk this way to each other. Instead, we share stories of how our lives have been affected. We share pain with each other and frustration at how destabilized we feel. How we've been separated from our family how lockdowns have led us to dark places how caged we feel we worry about our finances our loved ones our very futures we're astonished at how quickly and radically our freedoms have been taken away and in sharing these stories with each other we come to understand more and feel a bit of healing perhaps in short we have empathy but the politicians on the other hand show none they have glassy eyes that reflect cold blood even worse, he says, they come across as bloodless, like generals who order troops around, knowing with certainty that many people will die. He says they rarely, if ever, talk about what they are doing in human terms. They talk about data, restrictions, trends in infections and hospitalizations and death, but not as if any of this involves real humans or trade-offs. They preen with certainty that it is not, that is not really believable. Adam Smith explained empathy as a feature of the human personality. He said, as we have no immediate experience of what other men feel, we can form no idea of the manner in which they are affected. But by conceiving what we ourselves should feel like in the situation, by the imagination we place ourselves in his situation, we conceive ourselves enduring all the same torments and become in some measure the same person with him. End quote. And Jeff Tucker says, that's what real life is like. But political life today seems to banish that very human feeling. It's as if they're playing a video game featuring all of us, but we're mere figures on a screen programmed to do what they want. They have no obligation to understand us, much less worry about the pain they inflict. Because like figures on a gaming screen, we surely don't feel pain at all. That's also how the media has come to talk of this calamity. It's numbers, charts and trends, all highly alarmist, always with the same conclusion. The political class needs to impose more restrictions on us to make this virus go away. And we sit helpless watching all of this unfold day after day, astonished that our rules could be so impervious to what's taken place before our eyes. He says the emotional gap between the rulers and the ruled has never been wider in modern times it seems completely unsustainable it's like they aren't even trying to connect with people politicians are no great shakes in normal times but they seem worse than ever now throwing out law tradition morality even the appearance of caring about how their lockdowns have destroyed so many lives and he says the question is why so he says here's my attempt at an answer Jeff Tucker says the lockdowns have all been based on an implausible claim that viruses can be controlled via coercion. Same as people can be. But they cannot. And it's not surprising to find enormous evidence accumulating by the day that everything they have done has achieved nothing. In fact, he has a chart that compares COVID deaths per million around the world against Oxford University's Government Stringency Index. If lockdowns achieved anything, you could expect there to be some predictive power here. The more you lock down, the more lives you save. The lockdown countries could at least claim to have bolstered the lives of their citizens. What you see instead is nothing. There is no relationship. There is the virus. There are lockdowns. But the two operate as seemingly independent variables. Now, Jeff Tucker says the political class has started to intuit this. They suspect in their heart of hearts that they have done something horrendous, and they worry that this realization is going to spread. Then they will be held accountable, maybe not right away, but eventually. And this is rather terrifying to them. Thus, they are spending their days trying to forestall this moment of truth in hopes that the mess they made will eventually go away and they escape blame. Which is to say, they are lying. And the more they lie, or rather, then they lie even more to cover their previous lies. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, if you're going to push such a line in the face of the mounting evidence showing them to be frauds, if you're going to lie with impunity just to keep the game going, you will have to steel yourself against emotion and empathy. You become a sociopath. This might be enough to account for their bloodless posturing. He says there's another factor, too, and that is the more pain you inflict on people, the worse of a person you become. Power is dangerous, even when not used, but deploying it brutally and pointlessly rots the soul. This is a good description of almost the entire ruling class around the world today, save a few civilized countries that were never locked down. Wow. Now, you might feel, and I don't know, some people could make the case, well, he's painting with a pretty broad brush here. But I see nothing in there that I disagree with. And this is the hard battle that I'm trying to fight in in my heart, because there's a part of me that wants to just jump right to contempt for these political leaders. The ones who can sit there with their crocodile tears in front of the camera, please wear the mask, please do what we tell you. But I agree with Jeff Tucker's conclusion. They don't know what they're doing. The only thing they know how to do is wield the coercive apparatus of the state. To use force, to use laws, to use rules, to use their enforcers to get people to do what they think is the right thing to do. And sadly, they have plenty of enablers out there. Oh, what was that I saw the other day? Oh, yeah, it was, it was a rodeo. I believe it was a rodeo held in, uh, was it in uh, Nephi, Utah? Anyway, the rodeo stands were full. This was for, you know right in time for the Pioneer Day holiday. And there were, I'm guessing, thousands of people in those stands. It was packed. And I don't know if he's a current state senator or... The, anyway, uh, a, a one-time state senator, maybe he still is, is in the legislature, was decrying it on Facebook. Can you believe this? Look! Look at these people! They probably think they're having fun! Now, was there risk... And these people, by the way, you know, we're under, and the county that this event took place in, is under, uh, I don't remember what it is, a yellow stage of uh, COVID alert, which means they can have gatherings of up to several thousand people. I seriously doubt they were over whatever that arbitrary number is. But the bottom line is you can't hide from this virus. Yeah, there weren't a lot of masks inside. People were not strictly social distancing. People weren't doing all of the obligatory, you know, genuflection to government that, yes, we will do what you say. Bureaucrats, tell us what to do. Tell us what to do. And for some reason, that's very offensive to those with a controlling nature. I don't purport to tell you what to do. I will tell you this. I, I do respect and I honor those people who are decisive enough to study things out weigh the risks and then make up their own mind and choose their own course of action. In my heart, I believe we would be a better society. We would be a better country if more people would take that approach. So I know it's scary. And yeah, you're likely to get criticism. You might get confronted. Do it anyway. Be the person who shows others that courage is contagious. And don't look back. We need your example.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.